A word of advice. Next time you get a chance to travel anywhere in time and be anyone you want, and someone says, how about Medieval Shepherd? Take a pass. All that bullshit about sitting around in the meadow playing the lute all day? Don't believe what you read in the brochures. You get close to nature, all right. Sheep are great livestock because unlike shepherds, they thrive in all weathers. And in fair weather, they're all about attracting flies. Now, uh, what to have when you're hungry? Don't even think about it. Those aren't your sheep. They belong to your boss. That's the la-di-da feudal lord in that castle up the hill, a guy who works sitting down. As a shepherd, the only thing you've got is the shirt on your back, and believe it or not, the feudal lord owns that too. Though you might grow a little grain, your boss gets the best of that too, as a tax. But it's not all bad. You do get the honor of uh, going to war for him when he asks. Come inside and see what's for dinner. No mystery there. Dinner is pottage. Same as last night, and the night before, and the night before that. The recipe is pretty simple. Put a pot over a fire, a small fire because you're only allowed to gather dead wood from the forest floor. Now, put in uh, anything, leaves, a few grains, whatever's around, which ain't much. Add water and boil for a couple of hours. It tastes truly disgusting. Now, I heard you asking, why is it that someone in such abject poverty would own a dog? Another mouth to feed is a big deal. Well, that's simple. This dog is the best capital investment this shepherd will ever make, and he'll owe it all to countless generations of dogs and shepherds who came before breeding and training these herders into some of the smartest dogs on the planet. In fact, many of today's most intelligent and strongest and most responsive dogs descend from breeds taught to help peasants, hunters, and the poorer working classes forge an existence. Yet, with few exceptions, their names and stories are lost. Because the sort of men and women who needed a dog just to help them live are not the ones who got to write history. That privilege goes traditionally to a whole other class of people. People who gravitated to what would become a whole other class of dogs. I'm Bud Bacone. Join me as we uncover some backstories to some of these magnificent working class dogs and how they help shape the story of humans. More pottage? Oh, no thanks. I, I couldn't eat enough. Here you go. A dog biscuit's looking pretty good right now. I heard that. Tales from the AKC Archives. Today you could set it to music.
two 21st century border collies showing off skills bred into them over century upon century. The shepherd might use voice, hand gestures, or when the dog and herd are far away, whistles, each with a distinct command obeyed instantly by the dog. Each dog might understand dozens of specific commands from move the sheep right or left or bring them back or wait. And which of the two dogs does what? The shepherd's way ahead of you. Each dog is trained with its own unique set of commands. Two such dogs, well-trained, are all that's necessary to Fred and Ginger a hundred sheep gracefully around any pasture. Here's how it works. To the sheep, the dogs are natural predators. The approaching dog worries the sheep in the sense that she makes them anxious. Instinctively, they move away. Shepherd and dog then steer the flock by positioning the dog in the place opposite to where the sheep are to go. And when the flock needs rest, lie down. down goes the dog. The thread is removed and the sheep can lie down and count themselves. And this beautiful canine ballet plays out because many, many generations ago, an unremembered human beheld a canine predator eyeing his herd and the shepherd had an idea. What if I put that predator to work and make him my predator? Easy to say. There are a few inconvenient habits that need to be bred out of the dog, starting with, please don't eat the merchandise. Take that attitude, add a few millennia of breeding, and you've got the exceptional sheep-worrying stars of 21st century herding. That'll do. It's a story you won't find anywhere in art or literature. That spotlight has almost always been reserved for a whole different class of dog. Take, for instance, the Hounds of Porthos. In Alexander Dumas' The Man in the Iron Mask, the great musketeer Porthos has married up and life is très bien. His soldiering days behind him, he is the Baron de Vallon du Brasseau de Perfond, lord of a vast country estate. Now, time passes as it always does. When Porthos dies, his will is read to assembled friends. It provides a glimpse of how French nobles lived in the time of Louis XIV. The long catalog of the Baron's possessions includes... 60 dogs forming six packs divided as follows. The first for stags, the second for wolves, the third for boars, the fourth for rabbits, and two others for resting and guarding. 60 dogs? Like the many pieces of cutlery at a formal table setting, each with a single purpose. Contrast that with a real-life peasant down the road from the fictional Porthos. The one dog a poor man could afford to keep served as a ratter, herder, drover, garter, retriever, courser, and carter. His is not just a different dog, but in the eyes of many a different class of dog, a distinction that may have existed many, many years before Porthos was even a glint in the eye of Monsieur Dumas. Dogs were part of life in Greek and Roman culture as they were in all civilizations before and since. According to a paper from the University of Pennsylvania, Romans kept hunting dogs, guard dogs, and shepherd dogs, draft dogs, performing dogs, and yes, pet dogs. Then, as in the centuries to follow, they were divided into classes. Those for the upper class elite, 
and those for the great unwash. The evidence is captured in art, in literature, and in historical writings. In his book on hunting, the Greek historian Xenophon wrote glowingly about the scent hounds so coveted by the upper class. As for all the rest, Inferior specimens, that is to say the majority, show one or more of the following defects. They are small, hook-nosed, gray-eyed, blinking, ungainly, stiff, weak, thin-coated, lanky, ill-proportioned, cowardly, dull-scented, unsound on the feet. Greek and Roman pottery is rife with depictions of these minority elite hunting dogs, using them as a status symbol for the wellabus to doabus. Then, as in later centuries, it wasn't just the hunting dogs. Roman iconography also shows that toy breeds were a sign of stature. Some 500 miles and change to the north and west, a hop and a skip on a good Roman road, is a more modern dog, no less loved, but one whose likeness you won't find in sculpture or on mosaics. On the side of that mountain in Switzerland, hanging out with the cattle, stands the greater Swiss mountain dog, or Swissy. This fella descended from the war dogs brought over the Alps by the legions of Julius Caesar. Adopted by the locals, he would become the Swiss army knife of farm dogs, as well as a great family companion. The Swissy was developed to guard livestock, serve as a watchdog, move herds, and to pull heavy carts. Yes? So, how heavy are we talking? Good question. We're talking heavy. These days, Swissies compete in a sort of canine equivalent of a tractor pull. Each dog in the competition must demonstrate both the desire and the ability to pull a loaded cart 15 feet from a standing position with no contact allowed between dog and handler. The record is 5,136 pounds. Memo to you. Teach your Swissy good leash behavior early and often. Or tell your tailor you're going to need really long sleeves. They were enormously popular in Switzerland, but with the rise of automation, the Swissies' numbers declined. Following World War II, there were only a few hundred left. In 1968, Swissies were introduced to the United States, where their numbers edged upward. In 1995, they were fully recognized by the AKC. Elsewhere in Europe came another of the great unsung working-class heroes of the canine world, elsewhere being here, in the Pyrenees Mountains, separating the Iberian Peninsula from the rest of continental Europe. Over there to the north is France. We. Oui. To the south is Spain. See. Si. And from the need to guard flocks in these parts came the great Pyrenees. We've met this dog before, but not in her home habitat. While herding dogs herd, the Great Pyrenees is all about guarding. Like the Pyrenean Shepherd, her colleague from the herding group, she's got skills. For days, she might sit calmly watching over the herd or flock. Then, at the first sign of trouble, she'll spring into action, delivering a big bowl of trouble to any predator. Even when she's not working, she's working. The Great Pyrenees scent and its urine markings can be enough to keep predators away. Call it peace through strength or strength through pee. As the centuries passed 
and medieval times gave way to the Renaissance, then the age of discovery, European class distinctions just naturally faded away. <laughs> nah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Those distinctions are more than evident in the great royal portraits. It's easy to forget that beneath the frills and wigs were serious dog lovers, and for most, the dog of choice would not be working breeds. For instance, this lady, the Dowager Empress Su Si of China more than a century ago. Like many Chinese royals, she was a fan of the Shih Tzu, often nicknamed the Lion Dog. This breed's been around for a thousand years and in all that time has never once punched a time clock. Over here, Mary Queen of Scots. In the years prior to parting company with her head, a constant source of comfort were her Maltese Terriers. These playful, charming companion dogs have been parking on royal laps since the Bible was a work in progress. This guy, Mary's great-grandson, Charles II, known as the Cavalier King. He loaned his name to the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. It's one of those best-of-both-worlds dogs. As a toy breed, it's gentle and attentive, yet it never quite forgot its roots as a sporting squirrel chaser. Russia's Catherine the Great would immortalize her beloved Italian greyhound in portraiture and porcelain. A toy breed in practice, at heart, it's still a flash-and-dash coursing hound with an instinct for pursuit. In this lady you know, Queen Victoria, who became one of the founders of the Pomeranian breed we know today. Originally, they were larger, like their Spitz sled dog ancestors, so Victoria bred them down in size and at one point owned 35 of them. Through the centuries, these two worlds existed in parallel, with upper-class folks breeding dogs for companionship and sport, and the lower classes breeding dogs to help with the family business. Interesting trend, the bigger the industry, the more types of working dogs came about. Just ask this guy. Devant cet effondrement, deux voix se l'abandon et du désespoir. It was Charles de Gaulle of France who once said, how can you govern a country which produces 246 different types of cheese? Sure, he was grousing about French politics, but for our purpose, the point about cheese is well taken. About half of France is farmland, leaving lots of room for what is today its $31 billion dairy industry, and a good reason why French cuisine is all about butter and cream. French dough is made out of butter, and that's what makes it so good. Occupying all those pastures, then, are a great many cows, each with its own idea of where she'll go and when. Which is why, over the centuries, farmers in all parts of France have developed their own breeds of herding dog. The Briard, Beauceron, Bouvier de Flanders, Burger Picard, the Pyrenean Shepherd, not exactly one for every cheese, but you get the idea. Through the many regional pastures of France, distinct breeds have been hardwired over countless generations to serve essentially the same function. In Belgium, the story is oh so similar. In its great long tradition of dairy farming comes a proud legacy of herding dogs. Belgian Malinois, Belgian Sheepdog, Belgian Tervuren, 
Belgian Lakenois, a breed just recognized by the American Kennel Club in July 2020, all closely related. In so many parts of the world, over many, many centuries, the same story is told of highly trained dogs, hardworking, finely tuned farmhands, intervening in the daily struggle. Morning, Ralph. Morning, Sam. Between predator and prey. And through it all, the upper-class culture of hunting was alive and well among nobles and in the works of Tolstoy. In War and Peace, six chapters are dedicated to a wolf hunt for centuries during the Romanov rule and all-consuming passion of the Russian aristocracy. They were taking 54 hounds with six hunt attendants and whippers in. Besides the family, there were eight Borzoi kennelmen and more than 40 Borzois. So that with the Borzois on a leash belonging to members of the family, there were about 130 dogs and 20 horsemen. Woe betide the wolf who finds himself in front of that. The Borzoi, known in America as the Russian wolfhound until 1936, is a princely package of strength, grace, and glamour capable of flying by at 35 to 40 miles an hour. not fast enough to outrun the Russian Revolution. When the Russian aristocracy ended, the Borzoi breed very nearly ended with it. Kennels were destroyed, many owners and their dogs scattered throughout Europe. It was a tale familiar to the French. More than a century earlier, the French Revolution had scattered nobility, ended their sport hunting, and marked the end of the elegant Chiangri breed. It looked for a while like the forces of Western egalitarianism were going to squeeze the life out of the upper-class hunt. And in many places, it did. Except for... The English fox hunt. With the sound of the horn, a stirrup cup of sherry, and a tally-ho, the English fox hunt entrenched itself within Britain's upper class for centuries, though many of its familiar trappings came about in the 1800s. While democracy evolved with relative quiet in England, its class structure never got the memo. To this day, packs of English foxhounds flourish among the UK's well-to-do, even after a 2004 Act of Parliament designed to end the hunt. Now, of the foxhound, poet Charles Kingsley wrote, Next to an old Greek statue, there are far fewer such combinations of grace and strength as a fine foxhound. However affectionate, sociable, and gentle, unless you're a fox, the English foxhound is all about power and stamina and is not the stuff of house pets. It's a true lapdog, provided you mean running laps and not sitting on them. To this day, hunting packs remain a staple of upper-class society, but over the last century and a half, something began changing. Some royal families learned to embrace herding and working group dogs. Wait a second. Okay, time out. The host is taking a time out. Just to clarify, the AKC herding group of dogs split off from the working group in 1983. Herders are working dogs to be sure, but now with their own classifications. Get it? Got it. Good. Much as Victoria cherished her Pomeranians, she also developed a soft spot for Border Collies. 
and her son, Edward VII, helped popularize the development of many breeds. His go-to dog was his beloved wire fox terrier, Caesar, though he also owned a Samiat, a sledge dog breed given to him by Otto von Bismarck. And his grandson, Edward VI, the king's speech guy, kept his share of Labradors from the sporting group of breeds, but in 1933, he started a new tradition. As a gift for his daughters, Elizabeth and Margaret, he bought two Welsh Pembroke corgis, and so began a lifelong association between the House of Windsor and this hard-working herding dog. Scissors, please. By cutting this ribbon, I hereby declare this AKC breed biography open. Though recognized by the AKC in 1934, the Pembroke Welsh Corgi dates back about a thousand years. Thought to have descended from the Swedish Valhuns, they likely crossed the channel with Viking invaders. Despite their short legs, these corgis are fast, agile herding dogs, bred to herd cattle and drive geese to market. Their short legs allow them to duck below the kick of a cranky bovine. A cousin to the Siberian Husky, the Pembroke Welsh Corgi has a double-layered coat, helping rainproof it for long days in the pastures. At 18, Princess Elizabeth was given a corgi named Susan, from whom the princess, now queen, has bred some 14 generations. The last of this line, Willow, died in 2018. The slow erosion of class barriers in many parts of the world have found upper-class dogs in the homes of commoners. Blue-collar dogs have made their way to royal households, but also to homes as companion dogs. Still, they retain the mad skills bred into them over the generations. Case in point, a border collie named Chaser. Chaser's owner, psychology professor Dr. John Pilly, set out to test his dog's ability to associate things with their names. Pilly amassed a collection of small stuffed toys, assigned each a name, and through long, patient hours of training, taught those names to Chaser. Sure enough, when asked to fetch an individual toy by name, Chaser would run to a pile of choices, locate that specific toy, and return it to Dr. Pilly. One or two toys, sure. Four or five, had a boy. Ah, but Chaser, born to understand all manner of specific herding commands, memorized more than a thousand names. Dr. Pilly died in June 2018. Chaser died the following summer at the age of 15. History, arts, and literature are rife with the likenesses and names and stories of toy dogs, hounds, and sporting dogs celebrated by their owners, royalty, the upper classes, and captains of industry. As generations have come and gone, maps have been redrawn, and civilizations have faded, while others have emerged. Long, long forgotten are generations of working-class dogs bred to herd, guard, catch rats, and pull carts. Yet, in a sense, they live on today in the pastures of Colorado and Iowa and California, in suburban backyards of Raleigh and Boise and Albuquerque. They're alive in the intense, finely honed skills passed to their modern-day descendants. And their innate love of herding, pulling, and guarding are a testament to the forgotten women and men, the peasants, 
shepherds, farmers, and traders who bred them and trained them. Next to the dogs themselves, they are the heroes of this story. Breeders and trainers to whom millions of dog lovers of all classes owe a debt. Down and Back, Tales from the AKC Archives. Visit akc.org to learn more about all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow us on Instagram at American Kennel Club, on Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers, and let us know what you thought of the show. Founded many, many dog years ago, AKC is the recognized and trusted expert in breed, health, and training info. AKC is all about responsible dog ownership and dedicated to advancing dog sports. No humans were harmed while making this show.